This week, Jeff Sandy tells us about his special relationship with Nancy and Ronald Reagan during his first presidential campaign. After that event, they requested me. So during the great debate at uh, Stouffer's Inn on the Square and all other places, uh, she would say, make sure Mr. Sandy's on this detail. Wow. So I, I for so for a year, in, well, until November of the, when we had the election, for uh-huh. many, many months, I was, um, whenever Northern Ohio was the key election at that year, yep. so I was able to uh, work many Secret Service details, and Mrs. Reagan, for whatever reason, always said, where's Mr. Sandy at, which that meant so much to me. What she really said is, where's that stud, Jeff? I want him up here. <laughs> I like him in his tight jeans with them oil stains. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Just as we were coming on to this, Murph is regaling me with yet another free T-shirt he has gotten. (laughs) Have you paid for any clothing like in the last three years, four years? Uh, Well, hey, I'm retired. You know, I'm a turtle. That's what what we do. And it's not just one free T-shirt from this week. It's actually three. I got the one I have on now from the Colorado Sting uh, Conference. I think it was their 29th year of their conference out in Pueblo, Colorado. Fantastic. Those guys treated us like kings. But then I got two free shirts from Big Brothers Big Sisters National Conference. I got to speak there earlier this week. And I got to tell you, that was an honor. You know, I love going to speak to law enforcement conference and corporate events and colleges and so forth. But that's an organization that's out there really trying to help kids. So just, I was honored, truly honored to be there. Well, and speaking of truly honored, yes, uh, most of you will be truly honored to know that I am the host of the show, Morgan Wright. We hadn't even got to that yet. <laughs> and as you hear, I'm here with Mr. Freebie himself. Yeah, Steve Murphy, but call me Murph. The king of free. Yes, if it's free, it's for me. Yeah, hey, if you want instructions, call me. I'll te- text me, email me. I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> of course, it's cost you nine ninety nine to get Steve's tips, uh, but we do. It's but by ninety nine ninety nine. Come on now. Uh, well, I was discounting. <laughs> anyway, hey, but guys, just some quick housekeeping because that's what it says in the script. Uh, just head on over to Apple Review, five stars. Really helps out a lot. That and Spotify. Spotify's added that too, and hopefully other people will too. But give us a review, no matter what platform you are. It does help us. Re- really helps us too. Is head on over to our website, Game of Crimes Podcast. We put everything there. We put our books. We put our pictures of our guests. Um, We've got uh, our merch there and anything that we might be doing upcoming will also be listed there. But follow us also on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be. I'm going to ask you one last time, Murph, where you got to be. What was the question? Hey, listen, no, you gotta, you've got to come over to Patreon. Just give us a shot over there. See if you like what we have, the content. Do not use the C word this time. I won't. I won't. Boy, that, I mean, that could go a couple different directions. Okay, let's get yeah. back on track here. Just come over, check us out, see if you like the content. We're always open to suggestions. A lot of what we put on there comes from our listeners. They're interested in what we're talking our about. Players. So they come from you, our players. Give us, give us a, a try, you know, just check us out. And you're going to love the stuff too. Like I said, we've got some really fun stuff and we've got coming up. Um, we, it, was, it will be starting by the time this episode comes out, episode one of the Real DA Narcos talking about the Real DA Narcos Cali edition will be available at the Guardian of the Realm or Warden of the Throne level. And trust me, folks, 
You do not want to miss this. This is the most in-depth, best-told story about the takedown of the... If you want to know what it's like to be on the inside of an operation to take down some of the most dangerous people in the world, even though they call themselves the Mm -hmm. gentlemen of the Cali cartel... Uh, There's nothing gentle about them. Nothing gentle about killing people, slinging dope, you know, and uh, sending out Sicarios to do your work. So you got to listen to us over there on that Patreon. And you can find us at patreon.com slash game of crimes. It's very easy. Use the interwebs, type in those keys on your keyboard, and it will take you magically through the Al Gore's amazing internet. It will take you to our webpage and you can sign up for Patreon. And then afterwards, let us know what you think. If you think it sucks, tell us. You know, we can have differences of opinion. It doesn't mean we have to be enemies. We can still be friends. So we want to put on content on there that you want to hear. And let me tell you, one thing I do pride ourselves on is we we have stayed, we have tried very hard on our podcast, the free stuff. We we do not get political. We don't get we don't proselytize. We just tell the stories. We do have a little bit more fun on Patreon. And but you know what? A lot of that's driven by you, our players. You guys give us ideas for episodes, you guys give us ideas for stories. You give us feedback, and this is what we live for. And I'll tell you probably one of the funnest things we do is our uh, monthly QA. We have gotten yeah. some really strange questions and we've gotten <laughs> some really cool questions, but here's the thing: we answer every question. So if you want to hear what Morph and I think, or you want to ask us about the career or the things we did in this life of ours, by the way, speaking of that, we got a really great episode coming up with somebody who lived the life, but I won't, I, you know, say no more, say no more. Yep. But anyway, just, you got, you got to head over there to patreon.com slash game of crimes. But guess what, Murph? What? You can also get to us at paypal.com slash yeah. And just use our email address, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and bring us, or bring us, help us bring you, what can, you know, help us help you bring more exciting (laughs) content. But before we get started, we just have to do a quick disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people, and sometimes really bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the stories absolutely seriously, but... You know this, we never take ourselves serious, and we're going to have some fun. These are serious topics, but we're going to have a good time with it. But before we get to the serious topics, yes, it is time for Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotter. Burke, have you ever had a theory about a case? And you guys oh, yeah. talk Always. about you know, the theory, yeah. right? You know, it's like, well, we think he might do this. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know who came up with this, but whoever this gentleman is in law enforcement should get a freaking Nobel Prize. Okay. This gentleman's name is Cooper. I thought it was Copper because that would sound Cooper. But he says, right now, we've got two theories right now, Cooper said with the police department. One is that James knew the person who did this, and the other is he did not. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is that Yogi Berra? <laughs> when you come to the fork in the road, take it, you know? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. That's, that's uh, rocket sciences right there. <laughs> uh, uh, well, one is that they did it, and the other one is they didn't. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Well, of course, Skippy. You got anything original there? But anyway, Steve, I thought I would enlighten you with the uh, small-town police blotter <laughs> case theory algorithm. Who's, is it? Is it? Uh, who's the father of law enforcement? Um, Sir Robert Peel. Sir Robert Peel. I was going to say Vincent Peel. Uh, I'm pretty sure he didn't come up with that. No, that was not one of the nine <laughs> principles of Peelian policing, one of the Peelian principles. No, it is not. But... Yeah. You know, we talk about rocket scientists a lot. It's like looking out your window and say, it's either daylight or it's dark. (laughs) Jeez. Guy's a rocket scientist. Rocket scientist. Anyway, speaking of rocket scientists, Steve, this next guy is definitely not a rocket scientist. On November 18th, a man wearing a sweatshirt with a hood pulled tightly over his head and a mask covering all but his eyes 
pounded on the front door of the Security Savings Federal Bank in a little town in North Carolina, scaring employees inside. After several loud attempts to push the door open, which is a pull door, he fled. <laughs> Police say the same dude did the same thing just a couple weeks earlier. <laughs> All I can think of is that far side cartoon. It says Midvale School for the Gifted, and it shows this kid, looks like a little yeah. brainiac, pushing on a door, and the door clearly says pull. Yeah, this guy needs to get a career change. If that's the best he can do, mm-mm-mm. <sighs> Yeah. Well, you know, if he had a real weapon, why didn't he just reach, you know, pull his weapon out and shoot the door down? <laughs> he couldn't find it with that hood pulled over. probably constricted his blood flow. But, oh, uh, my goodness. <clears throat> Steve, you went to college, right? And at college, did you guys have a fraternity there? Yes, sir. Alpha Phi Delta. Alpha Phi Delta. I was a Sigma Chi in case anybody out there is keeping score. And mm-hmm. uh, But uh, there's another uh, fraternity called Iota Gamma Upsilon, and uh, they apparently are out of college. And they got in trouble by the campus police because, you know, move-in day and everything, you know, mm-hmm. parents are bringing their kids there. Mm-hmm. They had a sign placed on the front lawn that read, Freshman Daughter Drop-Off Site. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. I'll tell you what, as a father, if I'd seen that, oh, my God. Same way here. You know, we, um, our youngest daughter, we took her to college. There were, there were the guys from the frats out there to help you carry your stuff to your room. And, you know, <laughs> we might be a little suspicious as dads and former cops. But you know they're all just checking out the new talent coming to class. That's why you stay very close to your daughter while you're there. Yeah, and same thing when we're moving our daughter into college. I mean, it's not like I was suspicious, but a couple of guys that said, okay, hands behind your head, you know, yeah, don't move. I just got to pat you down real quick. Okay, what's your name? You know, Every time you see me show up to campus, I want you up on the wall. That's right. Don't make me tell you again. Gra- grab some wall, Skippy. Grab some wall. <laughs> anyway, so thus endeth the reading for today. That is it, but hey, guess what? That's what? not just because that's it. That does not mean where it ends, right? Right. Because we're just getting started. We are just getting started. And speaking of getting started, um, this is one that it was funny because funny, not haha, but funny because you ran into this gentleman, which ended up giving giving us two episodes between him and another person. And they both come out of West Virginia. And I got to tell you, Murph, I was surprised how articulate. <laughs> how well composed these gentlemen were being from West Virginia. You just pulled a shocker on me. You're from Kansas. You can't give fun, make fun of anybody, man. Well, West Virginia is the only state we are allowed to make fun of, that and Nebraska. So we're like 48th on the list. You're 49th and Nebraska's 50th. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, but it was. I, Harvey and I were speaking at the uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners for the Central Ohio chapter up in <laughs> Which Columbus. Which has to be an exciting because everybody had their pocket protectors and ballpoint pens and pads and calculators, right? And they're going to whip your ass next time you come to Ohio, <laughs> by the way. No, this, and, and so, you know, we get up there and, and when we're doing our show, I tell people where I'm from, where I grew up and, you know, and some people ask questions about where I worked prior to DEA. And these two guys came up afterwards and, and one, the guy we're talking to today, Jeff Sandy, was, is a retired IRS agent. Now, I've worked with a lot of IRS agents, and in, in your investigations, you always want an IRS agent yep, buddy. part of it, especially uh, one of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, OCDF investigations, because they can get access to financial documents that nobody else can. But <clears throat> I've never seen anybody as proactive as Jeff Sandy. The things that he's getting ready to tell you about, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was shocked that an IRS agent was doing this. Well, I was more shocked, too, because his first time meeting the other guest that we're going to be talking to, yeah. uh, Tom Kirk. <laughs> Tom Kirk is a op- operating undercover for the West Virginia State Police. Looks like a, you know, full-blown druggie, you know, bad guy. And here's uh-huh. Jeff Sandy, the IRS guy, wearing a shirt and tie going, 
are you going to roll me in this parking lot? What the hell's <laughs> that is a hilarious story. I mean, wait till you hear this story. And I'm, but I'm like you, I'm impressed. Not only that, but I'm impressed with what Jeff has done with this career. And by the way, folks, mm-hmm. this is the first time we have had a cabinet level secretary from any state on our show. Jeff is currently the cabinet level, the secretary for Homeland Security for the great state of West by God, Virginia. Absolutely. And I, I'm tickled to death to have Jeff on here. I can't wait for you to hear Tom uh, because of how his career progressed and where he ended up. I don't want to spoil it. We'll talk about you him mean when Jeff, his turn comes. Tom is two episodes after that. Yeah, that's what I mean. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious for them to hear Tom's story as well as Jeff's story because we're Tom's not talking career, about Tom. We're talking about Jeff. Let me finish. Stay on Boy, you interrupt me again. I'm gonna. Mm-mm-mm. You're in Florida. What are you gonna do? <laughs> Hop on your scooter and come after me? Uh, well, I turtle my ass on up there. You never know what's gonna happen. But it's, it is what Jeff. I mean, just from starting out as a street level agent, um, he's gonna tell you his career. Actually, became the sheriff of Wood County, West Virginia, at one point. Um, rather than wasting time, let's get into Jeff's story here, man. It is, it is fascinating. Well, Steve, we can't get into the story and hear all these fascinating stuffs about Jeff until we ask the penultimate question. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, country roads take me home, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? And you know what? We ought to, we ought to play that song on this too. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. Come on, Jeff, tell us how you did it. So I have to tell you, before we tell you who our next guest is, I had a friend of mine, and you'll appreciate this in a second, Jeff. He worked actually for TIG, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to call him on the phone all the time because they would have to say, Special Agent Bill Taylor, Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. I'd say, Bill, sorry, man, I got a call coming in. I'll call you right back. I would do that like three times, and he'd basically get <laughs> mad at me. However, though, <laughs> when Jeff when or when uh, Bill would introduce himself, because, you, know, you know, in people in government don't want to say who they work for, they say, what do you do? He would never say IRS. He says, I work for a small nonprofit organization. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only organization in the U.S. government besides DEA that makes more money than it spends. Hey, right? and that's a great thing. So let's welcome, before we get too far down the road, Jeff Sandy, currently the cabinet secretary for Homeland Security for the great state of West Virginia, where Murph happens to hail from. Yeah, sir, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Jeff. Well, Glad thank you for having me, sir. No, it's uh, an honor. no sirs here. We work for a living. All right. Mm-hmm. So, well, we used to. Used to. Now we just pontificate and do podcasts <laughs> for a living. So, yeah. hey, but Jeff, as we do with everybody when we get started, we want to talk about, you know, how did you get into this thing of ours that we call law enforcement? So, let's talk about first about, you know, um, where you grew up at. I mean, were you, are you a West Virginia person uh, from birth or did you just decide to move there? Uh, yes, sir. I was a, um, Grew up in a very, very small town in West Virginia called Dallison, West Virginia. And our claim to fame was one time and they dropped off an individual from a Greyhound bus and uh, he thought he was coming to Dallas <laughs> and said it was Dallison. So that was our claim, claim to fame. But uh, grew up um, very proud of this uh, gentleman. Um, grew up in a very a uh, poor family, but a family which we always had uh, food on the table. Our parents were um, uh, did, in fact, graduate from high school, but every one of our five siblings uh, graduated from uh, college, university. So uh, we um, 
we were brought up right, and I think we've done right uh, in our life. But um, when I went to Parkersburg High School, my goal in life was I wanted to get a degree in physical education, and I wanted to come back and be the head baseball coach at Parkersburg High School. So, um, so I went my when I went to Marshall University, and and gentlemen, that's a story within itself. My the thundering fa- herd. The thundering herd. But you see, Mr. Murphy here has a WVU shirt on. My two older sisters had went to WVU in go Mountaineers. I was, go Mountaineers. And I was watching a black and white TV when the news came across as to the Marshall plane crash. Uh, yep. And I looked at my dad and said, Dad, I'm going to go to Marshall. And he, he didn't really like that because he wanted me to go to WVU, but I went to Marshall. But in the same breath, uh, gentlemen, uh, a friend of mine, I've told you I was from a family that was not well-to-do, he advised me that the United States government was hiring low-income kids for a stay-in-school campaign, and I applied for uh, the what is called the United States Treasury uh, Bureau of Fiscal Services. Then they called it public debt. And when I went down to the unemployment office as a uh, 17-year-old kid, uh, they said, well, we have no more jobs working at public debt. How would you like to work for the IRS? So I started working the summer before um, I was going to go to college, and, and they liked my work ethic. And they said, how would you like to work when you go to Marshall University at our Huntington office? And I said, uh, sure. Uh, so uh, while I was there, uh, they were working an investigation on the governor for the state of West Virginia. And I got to actually meet special agents, which then it was called the Intelligence Division, the IRS uh, Intelligence Division. And I met those guys. And uh, they said, how would you like to talk to our chief? And that guy, Ben Hayes, a great guy. And uh, so they arranged for me to talk to Ben Hayes. And Ben Hayes said, you cannot become a special agent with a degree in physical education. Uh, You need to switch your major to accounting. And I switched uh, my major to accounting. And I worked uh, through college for the IRS the Internal Revenue Service. And then upon graduation, lo and behold, I get a letter stating, how would you like to be a special agent with IRS intelligence in Cleveland, Ohio? And so that, I lucked into be going into law enforcement uh, from going from a baseball coach to a special agent with IRS intelligence division. But you had to go to Cleveland. I went to Cleveland and I enjoyed it, sir. I was, as you know, you get to be, you, you're placed on the surveillance teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the surveillance teams, of course, it was organized crime that you were following. But, but in addition, and you guys might uh, like this story, in addition, um, all Treasury at that time assisted the United States Secret Service. And mm-hmm. Being a low-grade special agent, anytime you work for the Secret Service, it was overtime. So, buddy, we wanted that. Oh, yeah. uh, we wanted that. So, um, I, I hope you enjoy this story. But I'm um, 
uh, on the east side of Cleveland in a very bad neighborhood, and they call and say, we need you at Burke Front Airport as soon as possible. Uh, Governor Reagan's wife is coming in, and we do not have enough people, so please come in. And I say, look, and I look like a bum. I mean, I've got blue jeans with oil all over them blending in. So they said, come, we'll put you on the runway somewhere. So I get there, I run in, and they say, you're to open the door for Governor Reagan's wife, Nancy. And I said, look at me. And they said, ah, don't worry about it. So Nancy Reagan, I opened the door for her, and she comes in, and she stops right in front of me. And she looks at my feet. She goes up, looks at my head, looks at my feet, and she puts out her hand and says, I am Nancy Reagan. Uh, who are you? And I introduce myself to her, and she says, very nice to meet you. So the following day, uh, Ronald Reagan, Governor Reagan, is supposed to be at the Cleveland Clinic. Mm -hmm. So I figured now, since I look like a bum the day before, they'll probably put me in the highest garage somewhere. <laughs> but instead, my job is to close this big iron gate as soon as the governor's limousine goes through. Mm -hmm. And um, needless to say, there's a traffic jam. and the window rolls down and it had the big seal of state of California on it. The window comes down and uh, Nancy Reagan leans over Ronald Reagan and she says, I want you to know something, Mr. Sandy. She remembered my name. I thought that was shocking. She yeah. goes, you look much better today. <laughs> you know what would have been really bad is if she would have come out and seen you there and just reached into her purse and given you a tent and said, you know, here, go get yourself a meal. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Well, you but must she, have, you must have left ahead. an impression on her if she remembered your name. Well, after she introduced me to Ronald Reagan, after that event, they requested me. So uh -huh. during the great debate at the Stouffer's Inn on the Square and all other places, uh, she would say, make sure Mr. Sandy's on this detail. Wow. So, I, uh, for, so for a year, in, well, until November of the, when we had the election, uh -huh. for many, many months, I was, um, whenever Northern Ohio was the key election at that year, yep. so I was able to... Uh, work many Secret Service details, and Mrs. Reagan, for whatever reason, always said, where's Mr. Sandy at, which that meant so much to me. What she really said is, where's that stud, Jeff? I want him up here. <laughs> I like him in his tight jeans with them oil stains. Yeah. 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 Hey, but one thing people don't realize, too, and give us just a quick history lesson, right? A lot of people look at Secret Service now, and they see him under Department of Homeland Security. But mm -hmm. the United States Secret Service used to be an arm of the United States or the uh, U.S. Treasury. Right? Absolutely. And also DEA was a uh, part of uh, right. Treasury and ATF. ATF. And, yeah. It was, what the hell happened with Treasury? They just lose their ability to manage agencies? What's the deal here? Or no, I know what it was. FBI decided we don't have enough people over at DOJ. So they invited you guys to come <laughs> over, didn't they? Well, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't privy to those high level meetings like that. But, uh, but I will tell you this, I was outside the uh, room when they were developing the national strategy for the, uh, for the Republicans. And I'll never forget, I was listening uh, to the debates and imagine this 40 years ago, 
it'll be 42 years ago, uh, they made the decision there in Cleveland, Ohio, that uh, gun gun control, Second Amendment, and uh, abortion rights, uh, you know, and that's for 42 years later. We're still talking about uh, what they decided uh, there in Cleveland. Wow. And it just shows you that how long, I mean, really just from a societal standpoint, how long it takes to actually address issues or, you know, things are still current, obviously. But but so but as IRS, though, um, during that year, how did how did your boss take it when they said, hey, look, I get it, a candidate for president. But still, I mean, it's like you got work to do. How did you manage to swing all of that and go to all these cush places, you know, like Iowa and uh, Kansas <laughs> and Nebraska? Well, you know, as a, um, I mean, after working in Cleveland, Ohio, I could see everything is kind of a step up at that point, isn't it? Uh, I I enjoyed every, <laughs> every, I mean, every case that I worked there, every, the, the agents, uh, my training officer was Frank Busta and he's deceased now, but he was an, an old Irishman and, uh, Frank, um, Frank and Ted Bloomstein and many others, they, they helped um, change my life and lead me down the path in, I feel, a successful career in law enforcement. Very successful. People, you know, our listeners here, you've got some, you're going to be amazed at some of the stuff this guy's done as we go through his interview today. So this is going to be good. Okay, before we get too far down the road, I want to just wheel back for a second, uh, because <laughs> this is a question Murph's talked about uh, when mm-hmm. we talk about how how accurate is Narcos. We've talked to the guys who did uh, the Cali cartel, other folks who've been involved in series. I watch, I mean, I remember that too, because look, being from Kansas, we had the Wichita State team die in a plane crash, you know, and uh, that that happened to Marshall. I mean, and so I saw the math, the movie with Matthew McGonaghy. Did you see that movie? Absolutely. And my son, uh, Benjamin, was Marshall student government president when that was filmed. And he got to drive uh, McGee, the director, around. And and, uh, you can barely see him in one of the scenes. That's a claim to fame. Well, let me ask you, though, uh, how, you know, just give us an idea. How accurate did the movie accurately portray uh, the, the, the university in the aftermath? Overall, the movie was very accurate, and you got to think about the theme, and that the theme is rebirth. You know, Marshall wanted to um, abolish the football program. Marshall was really a basketball school then, and they wanted to abolish it, and people made the decision to uh, keep the football program. And and you know, think about it. Um, if we wouldn't have kept the football program, I mean, you wouldn't have had the Chad Penningtons and the Byron Leftwiches and the Randy Mosses and stuff like that. So a, a good decision was made. Um, you know, I tell people I went there in four years, and in four years I saw three home wins. And so a lot of people, um, a lot. Of, it took a lot of people supporting the team to keep the team three wins man that reminds me growing up in kansas we used to call them the kansas state Mildcats um, mm-hmm. instead of the wildcats they went for a, it was we suffered through that too before they kind of had their way but marshall actually did i mean they've had a resurgence like you say but they've done fairly well over the past few years you know um have i think been to a couple bowl games and they've had some good records oh you know absolutely and um for example 
when I went to Marshall, could you imagine if someone would have said, on September of 2022, you're going to be playing Notre Dame? I would have laughed at them. I mean, think about that. Marshall University is playing Notre Dame in 2022. I mean, that speaks to... I, I hate to disappoint you in a head oh, now. Geez. I should have done it. Here we go. So uh, I was there. I My dad taught ROTC out at Notre Dame. I was there when Rudy was there, when mm-hmm. uh, Eric Parsegan was there, and when Joe Thiesman, before it was Thiesman for Heisman. I did my graduate work at Notre Dame. So all I can tell you, pal, sorry, man, go Irish. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> but, but I will tell you this, though. Um, Regardless of the outcome, the thing I always look forward to, especially with college football games, just the sportsmanship, the camaraderie. And you know what? And it is. It's a having been to that stadium, being in front of Touchdown Jesus. I went through a, you know, football games down on the field by the end zone when we played Navy. It, it is. It, it's an experience. And I, I look forward to these kids getting a memory of a lifetime playing, you know, uh, at the Golden Dome there and seeing Touchdown Jesus as Notre Dame scores a lot of touchdowns against the obviously weak Marshall defense. But we will uh, we'll take a bet on that, sir. Well, we'll have, hey, you like governors do? We'll have a bet here, okay, on the game outcome. So, Jeff, you know what we'll do? I apologize, ah, sorry. Jeff. You know what we'll do? We'll leave it open to our players out there. You guys tell us what the bet would be. If Jeff and Marshall win, what do I owe him? And if me and Notre Dame win, which is inevitable, this is a, I hate to take the bet, but what does that, what do they owe us? So, we'll yeah. see. Yeah, I will. So, let me just weigh in on this bet here because you're challenging somebody from the IRS. Do you really want him calling Washington and having your taxes reviewed and make a full audit? And I, think I just got I just got my refund check. See that I even voided that. I'm going to shred. First time I've gotten a refund check from these type bastards in the last like 12 years. So oh, that's funny. When you're self-employed and you pay quarterlies and you get actually money back. It's a good day. So, hey, anyway. Murphy, did you notice he did not have an electronically deposited? Because he yeah. did not. He doesn't want us to know where his checking account is. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, th- I think you guys are probably good enough. You could find him. <laughs> yeah. And if you I need not... help, hey, I'm available as a snitch. Now I, I charge you for my information, but uh, hey, I'll and you know how you can tell when up. Murphy's snitching? He's showing up to your party holding a glass of ginger ale, and everybody's patting him down for the wire. There you go. <laughs> There you go. And that's pretty much true in the law enforcement culture. When you're new, I mean, why are you not drinking alcohol? Are you trying to get something on everybody? What do you got a ginger ale for? Pay. Uh, put your arms up. Turn around. Anyway, <laughs> we have hey, digressed. So we'll figure I, I out. I do want to ask one thing here. Excuse me, Morgan. Um, would Would you guys be okay if, and uh, not to get you know sappy or corny or anything, but I'd like for us to dedicate this this interview to the memory of the Marshall football team. That, that crash happened on, ni- on November 14th, 1970. 75 people on board that plane. 37 were the, the football team itself, eight members of the coaching staff, 25 boosters, and f- five flight crew members. So uh, with y'all's permission, we will dedicate this to the memory of the thundering herd that passed away in 1970. Is that okay? Oh, uh, bless you. Mr. Murphy, and I can't wait to let the Marshall University Athletic Department hear what you have done. Thank oh. you so much. Well, and and if you tell them I'll, I will put my hand over my WVU on my shirt. So <laughs> when I say this, okay. Hey, well, hey, you, <laughs> something that's a little eerie. So I just pulled that up too. So the Wichita State University football team, which they've never brought back football, their airliner crashed into the uh, mountain uh, over in uh, Colorado. Friday, October 7th, 1970. Wow. Yeah, that's a rough year. Well, Mr. Murphy, true statement. The West Virginia University emblem 
was on the Marshall University football helmets uh, at, it, when the young thundering herd the following season. I remember. I remember the story. I remember, mm-hmm. You know, was it uh, was Bobby Bowden the coach then? Absolutely. And I've actually uh, several years ago had the honor to talk to Bobby Bowden about mm-hmm. Marshall football and uh, um, just Bobby Bowden. What a class act! What go. a class act! You know, and and you know, I mean, as much as people love West Virginia, um, and it is a beautiful state, um, it's it's there's not a lot of industry outside the coal industry and tourism and railroads. Don't forget moonshine and meth. Well, we're talking legal, <laughs> so you, you should see. You won't start talking about my family again. But, but the, and our two major universities are WVU and Marshall, and that's when everybody comes together when there's. Uh, you know, a dire need. There's been a, 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 a horrific and dast- not dastardly, but it's been a horrific occurrence. And the state bonds together. It always does. It always will. And that's what I love about West Virginia. Great place. Dude, we can't. Okay, let's dedicate. But this is getting down. I mean, this is getting sad. We got to bring this back up and start taunting. <laughs> a, let's let's make fun of a while. Let's make fun of the FBI. Everybody loves doing that. No, back to our regular <laughs> scheduled program. So um, Jeff understands that. <laughs> and by the way, that's going to be one of our questions for you folks. We haven't, uh, if we haven't mentioned Patreon enough, that is one of our questions, Stephen. This upcoming month's Q and A for Patreon is somebody wants to know why we dog the FBI so much. Oh, good. We, we're not going to answer that here. If you want to hear it, you yeah. got to listen on Patreon. Okay, back to this though. So, but, but Jeff, but. Uh, but again, the, the the question was, how did you get your bosses to sign on to letting you go all over the place to do this? Was it simply because this guy could be the next president and you want to get on his good side? I can tell you the truth that it is they're desperate for people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being honest with you. No, um, it, you know, you have your senior agents. Keep in mind, I'm just out of college. You have your senior agents who have significant investigations at the U.S. attorney's offices, and you're looking at your new your new agents, and they're freshly out of uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. They've qualified. They're they've been beaten down from the defensive tactics instructors. Uh, you know your younger people uh, do not have the caseload, so that that's the real answer. We are new, we're out of the academy, and we do not have the, the high caseload that would be hurt if we were on the road. If- wow, cool. Well, I mean, but so what was it like? Because that was a historical, that's when he, that's when he was running against Carter, because then mm-hmm. the second one he ran against Mondale, and the one in Mondale was a 49-state sweep. That wasn't even a contest, mm-hmm. but they weren't sure, like you say, about Carter. So what was it like, you know, uh, going through all of those places, seeing all of these people that are later going to become president, first lady of the United States, you know, vice presidents, folks like that? What was it like to get that piece of history? I, I look back. I look back at that. And Jimmy Carter is such a good man. Ronald Reagan is a very good man. And I, I will tell you this. I would cherish if we could have an election like that again, where you have uh, two men that um, uh, look at uh, the way they talked about one another. It wasn't about beating someone down their personality or whatever. It was on the facts. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that is just so 
I I would welcome that if it came back that Civility, we dealt with yeah. the facts. Absolutely. One of the great lines, though, that came out of that, I remember Reagan was talking. He was there with President Carter. I think they're doing a debate. He says, a recession is when your neighbor loses their job. A depression is when you lose your job. And a recovery begins when he loses his job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but it was just the art of the communication. Nothing personal. I mean, they just, uh, you know, uh, it was very civil back then. And, and you know, um, there's a lot of things around the timing, around the hostage rescue, you know, out of Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that that played into it, but still, to, to be a part of history like that, it's just man. That's that's I mean, for me, that's like awesome. We got to see uh, when I was on Salina PD, uh, President Reagan came to Kansas State, and a lot of us were on standby. We didn't get to go mm-hmm. actually there, but they had a bunch of cops on standby in case anything happened. But even then, like rushing up, seeing all the Secret Service vehicles loaded with weapons and people, and the, all the assets they bring in every time the president moves. I should have an entourage like that, Steve. Next time we go somewhere, I need you to get me a Suburban with two guys hanging out the back, okay? I will, but you, I'm not guaranteeing where you might end up. <laughs> if there's a bag over my head. Yeah, down in yeah. Mexico. Yeah. If there's a bag over my head and I disappear. But anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast again. So <sighs> so what did you do after that, though, Jeff? Uh, you know, were you did you start picking up cases after that? What happens after the election's over? Um, I... I um, was assigned various investigations. All new agents are giving are given assigned pure tax cases. So you're not getting into the. Uh, you may go out on the surveillance on organized crime. You may go out on surveillance on drugs, but the cases that you're required to work are your pure tax cases. And in in fact, um, my first two cases, which are very rare today is estate tax cases where the executors or the executrix, uh, they commit fraud to hide the assets of the person who has passed away. And um, the the one case involved a, a circuit court judge in the uh, in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And um, it was it was just um it allowed that case allowed me to learn how to be a detailed investigator to how to go through the records and in in and also the interviewing because you're you've got to be sensitive to the people that you're going out because you're talking to people that lost a loved one so i i was very blessed in working uh those uh, cases which are very complex from the get-go. Well, think about it. It's uh, you know, think about this morning and our listeners as well. You successfully prosecuted a judge. Now, a judge is a, is a lawyer to start with, who ostensibly knows the law well enough that they can rule, make rulings. Of course, they have they have their uh, law books and and case you know past case law mm-hmm. uh, to refer back to. But that's somebody that's that's not just you don't pick that guy off the street. That's somebody who has been in the judicial system for years and years and is typically respected. And here a federal agent is taking down a sitting judge. You don't hear that very often. I mean, that's, that's uh, I hate to say a feather in your cap, but damn, good job. Well, it was a ruthless case. For example, one, it had many, many parts in it. And one part was the Youngstown Syndicate. And the Youngstown Syndicate was, and this was in 1980, probably 30 years prior to that, they formed this group of investors. 
to buy property in Youngstown because they speculated that Youngstown would be would boom and would become the next uh, Cleveland. And, and Jeff, real quick too, when you said syndicate, I don't want people to get confused because a lot of people think syndicate like organized crime, but you're no. talking about an investing syndicate. Correct. It, it correct. Very. Thank you so much. But it was called on paper the Youngstown Syndicate. But so you had all these investors, and they invested in speculating that the this was going to be a big boom. Well, in the seventies. Uh, the deceased person uh, met with all the investors and said, listen, I am sorry to inform you that this is a flop. And what I recommend is you sign over the real estate to me because the property taxes are going to be way more than what the value of the property is. Mm-hmm. So." We had to track down all these investors, many of which, when they retired, they moved to Miami, Florida. And I got to tell you, that was an eye-opener, guys, in that um, I would go into a neighborhood, which I kid you not, one of the the neighborhoods, there was actually a shooting while we were driving there. And but I found where this elderly lady lived and all her blinds were pulled and everything. And I knocked at the door and and I got a kid. She was scared to death Hmm. because when she had bought that house 30 years earlier, it was it was the great, a great neighborhood and all her friends and everything. But over those years, other they the people died that. Uh, died and here she is all by herself and it was uh when i told her that uh the youngstown syndicate was not uh sold at the courthouse front of the courthouse you know you could just see the look on now i believe she was close to 90 at that time you could just mm-hmm. see the look on this one lady's face how i cannot believe that they did this to me and that was um the case but it was a that particular case um um really gave me a good foundation to move forward. So what was the result out of that case? I mean, you did the investigation. What did you get indictments, make arrests? What would you do? It, it went to trial, and, um, um, and, and the jury came back uh, with all guilty verdicts. Oh, that had to be satisfying for all of that work. You know, to, but it's also like you say, it's also satisfying because of what you did for that lady who lived in that neighborhood who watched everything just disappear away from her, her, her future, you know, like you say, friends, everything. It's not the neighborhood she bought 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And it's because she, her money had dwindled away. All she had to live on was social security at, at that point. So it was a lot of sad interviews on that uh, particular case. I'll bet. I'll bet. Mm-hmm. Were you able to recover any money at all, any uh, victim compensation? Uh, a very good question, and we'll get to this later on. At that time, uh, there was uh, there was no forfeiture. We did not have money laundering laws. So uh, to answer your question, no, because there wasn't a method to facilitate that. Now, she could have civilly, so civilly, but, but and again, you need um, – um, 
that I could not do anything for her at that particular time in history. And this was early 1980s, is that right? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. And Jeff, listen, you got to call Morgan Morgan. You got to call me, Steve, or Murph. We're not sirs. <clears throat> we're not misters. Yeah, we're your okay. friends. You and I are brothers. Okay. We're probably okay. related. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate the respect, but we're not used to that. Can you call okay. me, sir, one more time? I'm going to call up uh, the coach, Marcus Freeman, and tell him to run up the score on Marshall. You've been okay. warned. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. No mercy. All right. So, uh, but let's, uh, but, but how long did you stay with the IRS? Your whole career? Some of your career? Let's let folks know what, what kind of progression did you make? Uh, you start off on the IRS, you work a few cases, uh, you become a big shot because now the president knows you by name and the first lady. Now what happens? There you go. Well, I was a um, special agent from 80 through 93. And then I was a supervisory special agent from 93 through 2005. So 25 years, sir. Wow. Well, when did you, uh, so at some point you moved from Ohio and went back to New yes. West Virginia, right? That is correct. In the early 80s, I my, um, uh, spent my time in Cleveland and put in for a transfer. And as you know, with DEA, you can put in for that transfer. And I got it. And I was uh, transferred to Parkersburg, West Virginia. And um, within, you, um, where go you ahead. happened to go to high school. Mm-hmm. How big exactly. of a town is Parkersburg? Uh, about 30,000. But, but here's the catcher, catcher on that is, Steve, even though that was my post of duty, I think I only worked maybe two or three cases there. They were all in the uh, Morgantown, Fairmont, Clarksburg, Wheeling, and the Northern Judicial District of West Virginia. Yeah, I was I was on the road all the time. Oh yeah, Morgantown, the home of West Virginia University. Woo! WVU, uh, yeah, yeah. And in fact, your um, um, one of your guests that you're going to have on your show is uh, the former Colonel of State Police Tom Kirk, mm-hmm. and I'll just give the audience a heads up on him is he called me and said, are you one of those guys that um, investigate uh, the money from narcotics? And I said, yes, sir. He said, would you meet me tonight? And I said, well, okay, tell me when, where and when. He says, tonight, 11 p.m. at the West Virginia University Coliseum. And I said, well, how will I know how to find you? He says, no, 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 no. I will find you. So, do so, you think you were getting set up at this point? Like somebody's going to roll you as a case? Somebody pissed like off it. in a case? Hey, needless to say, the gun was out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the gun was out. So I'm there, and I'm in my G car, which is a, uh, a Buick, one of those first front-wheel drive Buicks that they had in uh, Skylark. And all of a sudden, this green Chrysler Cordoba pulls up. And this car, I mean, it looks like it had been in one of these when the high school kids take a sledgehammer and you can pay a dollar to beat on it. So he says, you the IRS guy? And I said, yeah. And he said, get in. Well, I get in the car. The door was broken, (laughs) broken. And in fact, and the headliner was so rotten, I had to drive around Morgantown with my hand up holding the headliner on the car so I could see. And that was West Virginia's first take-home car for their state police, right? (laughs) Trust me, that fine Corinthian leather was more rotten than you could imagine. Uh, I'm shocked, Rich. 
R- Ricardo Montalban sang about that on his commercials about the rich Corinthian leather. I know, I know. It's um, yeah, that was um, I at his retirement party. Needless to say, I brought that up that he he was so well respected. I said, "Why didn't you just rip the headliner out?" And he says, "That took away from the mystique of my car." <laughs> the ambiance. Yeah, I got. We have a good story, story coming up for him. Yeah, I got to tell you a quick story about Tom because we were scheduled. Morgan and I were scheduled to interview Tom this morning, and and we're mm-hmm. interviewing Jeff this afternoon. Of course, our listeners don't care about that, but uh, I had to postpone because um, some concrete trucks were here at our house, and they were making a hell of a lot of noise. And I, <laughs> seriously, don't say concrete trucks. You're putting your pool in the backyard with the well, big slide, be, aren't you? I was trying yeah. to be nice about it. All right. So mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, Tom and I got in a conversation after I got a hold of him and said, listen, you know, we've got to postpone it. And he's very gracious. And uh, uh, we got to talking about him working undercover narcotics when he was with Western State Police as just a trooper. You know, he's a, he's a road trooper. And we got some mutual friends in West Virginia. And, and he got to talking about how his beard had gotten so bushy. That, I mean, it's so thick that when he would come home from work and if he'd been out for several days, his wife would stop him. We're talking about how our wives keep us in check. Um, and he said she would meet him in the garage. She'd say, you strip all your clothes out down here. You go straight to the shower. I don't want to smell you. I don't want to see you till you've been cleaned up. And so he did, you know, and he understood what she's talking about. And so they, <laughs> they'd be sitting there watching TV after dinner. And all of a sudden they'd hear this buzzing noise. And he's like, you know, they're both looking like, what the hell is that? And he got to dig and his beard was so thick. He had little bitty critters living in the damn thing. <laughs> like, Holy cow, where were you? <laughs> Oh. So we're going to surprise him with that when we do his interview because oh. he shouldn't have told me that. <laughs> well, oh, I like man. this one though too about his car. We're going to have to. We're, you're going to have to during the course of this give us a couple more stories we can tell. So Tom oh. thinks that we've done our research. Oh my goodness, guys! There's so many. I gotta. <laughs> they, okay, I had not. I had not made an arrest yet in West Virginia. So true story. We're going to arrest the mayor and the chief of police of Osage, West Virginia. Dude, after a judge, isn't that taking a step down? But I mean, (laughs) but I got to kid you, the the arrest record when that was the old days where you on the paper with the holes in it. Mm -hmm. I kid you not, their arrest records was close to three inches thick. The mayor and the chief of police. Wow. How do you how do you stay with? chief of police with that many arrests? It's West Virginia in, in, in the early early eighties. Okay, <laughs> his name his last name wasn't White, was it? <laughs> no, <laughs> just but but I got to tell you, one of the special agents I managed, he knew the White family. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Jessica White. Hey, and and if I could, and I should have done this at the beginning. I met mm-hmm. Jeff and and Tom both together. Uh, was last month or month before? Mm-hmm. at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners Conference in Columbus, Ohio. And and it's rare that I meet people from West Virginia when we speak. Um, and so these guys came up and we got to talking and just an instant friendship. And, and just so our listeners know, Jeff and Tom have worked together years and years and years, even post-law enforcement careers. Um, so we're not, you know, Tom, if you're listening to this, we're Hell yeah, we are picking on you, but hey, you know, that just kind of goes along with this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. But just that's the background for our listeners to know. First of all, how I got to know these guys and and why we're talking about Tom while we're interviewing Jeff. Because you know what? We're probably going to talk about Jeff when we interview Tom. 
That's fair game. Fair game. And we'll have Tom's interview recorded before any of these are published. So he won't have a thing to say about it. It'll be too late by then. So, all right, Jeff. Okay. Here's one thing you got to give. Give us the most embarrassing event that you and him did. Oh. Oh, no, wait a minute. You're shaking your head like, oh, how many? There are so many. Which one do I pick? (laughs) Well, let's finish the story first about arresting the mayor and the police chief. I got to hear this. Well, when we go through the door of this bar, it was, I was going to do the backup and Tom was going to, and another agent, Larry Minks, who's a great friend of both of ours, was going to, um, I was going to do the backup and they were going to make the arrest. I was going to arrest the chief of police. Um, Tom was going to arrest the mayor. Well, at the last minute, Larry Mink says, I want you, I want, you're not doing the backup anymore. You're going to arrest the mayor. So we go in and these guys, most of their arrests are fights. I mean, one guy beat a guy into a a coma and he, of course he lived, but we go in, I go federal agent, you're up against the wall. And this guy looks at me and his face just gets white. And I said, turn around. And the chief of police turns around. I said, let me have your right hand handcuffed, left hand handcuffed. And I'm here going, man, I'm a badass. I'm a badass. This guy has all these rust records. He listened to the Fed. So I take him down to the West Virginia State Police Barracks to fingerprint him and, and get all the information. And he looks at me and says, who was that guy behind you? And I said, well, that was uh, Special Agent Larry Minks. And he said, my God, he says, I don't know if he was going to shoot you or Tom or or me. <laughs> he says, he was waving that gun around everywhere. <laughs> He's, he says, I thought you were going to take one in the back of the head. <laughs> so, need- so needless to say, it blew. I thought I was something special. And it, it was... The guy was scared to death that I, one of us was going to get shot. Just stick with that story. The one, you, the way you tell, it's the best. Yeah. Way. <laughs> hey, so what were they getting arrested for this time? Uh, it's narcotics. It okay. was. Uh, we were, and uh, Steve knows this. That's when Ronald Reagan formed the Presidential Narcotics Task Force, mm-hmm. and uh, I was very fortunate, blessed that I was assigned uh, to that in the Northern Judicial District of West Virginia. That was. As Steve knows, that was actually before OSADEF. So Ronald Reagan had formed it, and and uh, IRS had a very strong presence in um, uh, the Presidential Narcotics Task Force, and very blessed to have been part of it. Hey, let me throw out a name, because I'm going to ask you about a story here real quick. Did you ever know an IRS agent out of Kansas by the name of Marty McCormick? I did not, sir. All right, well... The only beef I had to pick with the IRS anytime they worked with us on our dope investigations or we were doing stuff, Marty, great guy. At that time, he had a green Ford LTD with tinted windows. Mm-hmm. And on more than one occasion, he ruined our surveillance because he would drive back and forth in front of the house. And we're like, Marty, but drive back and forth in front of the damn house. They're going to figure this out. But the one thing that was always great, well, you guys couldn't share tax information, but I'll tell you what, though. We'd come in, it's like, get a detective so-and-so, you know, you got the KBI. He'd just come in and say, I'm Marty McCormick. And then he'd look at him, he'd go, IRS. And the one guy went one time goes, oh, we're so screwed. He didn't care about us. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, if three words, yeah, three letters that strike fear into the heart of men. Mm-hmm. The other frame was, you know, Mike Wallace from uh, uh, 60 Minutes is here to see you. The other one is, yeah, I'm from the IRS. We're here to help. 
So, yeah. uh, <laughs> well, but well, Morgan, see, this is, that's the difference between Kansas and West Virginia. We had a way to get around that. We, we would do a application for a financial search warrant and we would list the person as reported this income during these years. And then that way it made it public. So law enforcement could have it. Uh, so, we, so we figured out how to do it legally. Gosh, darn it. <laughs> okay. Note to self. When I go back to Kansas, I'm going to tell this trick to a couple of the guys. Okay. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, no. So what, what was the final uh, outcome of that? So you arrested the chief. Uh, you thought you were badass, but the gun was apparently the, the most uh, uh, intimidating part of that conversation. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, but, but after, uh, Morgan, after a month or so, uh, I was actually asked if I would help form the first uh, Parkersburg Narcotics Task Force. So I was very blessed in being able to go back in informing that with the Parkersburg Police Department, Wood County Sheriff's Office, the FBI, DEA. And uh, believe it or not, we actually, actually had a guy by the name of Denny Huggins, uh, who was with the West Virginia State Fire Marshal's Office, who was just an unbelievable investigator. So I was able to work narcotics cases in, in that area. Why fire marshal? Um, well, normally they do not, but Denny was one of the best polygraph operators I'd ever been around, and he had the ability to. We would talk people into saying, "Well, I know nothing about nothing about that," and we'd say, "Hey, uh, we believe you, but just to make sure the U.S. Attorney's Office believes you, would you be willing to uh, be polygraphed?" And of course, they would say, "Well, well, sure," and then fail it, and we'd go forth from that. But Denny was also very good in surveillance also. Uh, the story you gave about the green LTD, um, <laughs> um, we, um, um, we, ha we had a very, we had a very good team of um, uh, federal agents with us. And here's how small the world is, Morgan. Guess who one of the agents was with DEA that, was on, that helped us on the Parkersburg Narcotics Task Force? Let's see. Well, you can't say Steve Murphy because he wasn't he wasn't there mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it ended up being Steve's boss in um, um, Columbia, Joe um, Toft, um, no. Jerry Reinhardt, who's yep. uh, may he rest in peace. Yeah, Jerry was our ASAC in Columbia, which was uh, second level supervisor for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Assistant yeah. Special Agent in charge. So we have you, you're actually doing pretty good, Jeff. Ever since we gave you the directive that you didn't want me to run up the score, you have called me Morgan and Murph the way you should. So look, mm -hmm. look at this, Steve. Here's an example for you to follow. Somebody who can follow direction. Yeah, it depends on who it comes from. If it's coming from you, well, you know, it's kind of like when the government gives us an order. <laughs> We look yeah. at it as a suggestion. Not so much. The only the only one I the only one I follow through is when the IRS says I owe them this much money, the Treasury. I pay it. So uh, yeah. I argue later. So, but getting back to that. So, what was the prevalent drug uh, that you guys were dealing with during those times? Uh, it was uh, powder, powder cocaine, uh, homemade homemade meth, and um, a lot of amphetamines were there then. You know and. There was a documentary on Hulu that came out. Michael Keaton played the doctor, and it was talk about dope sick. Now, that was obviously later when we are talking mm -hmm. about OxyContin. But mm -hmm. that's that's been a hard-hit area. I mean, just uh, 
all around, right? Everything from you, you work that backwards to how meth impacted these families, cocaine impacted them, because there's a lot of poor areas in the state. A lot of people make their living off the coal mines, you know, or off of, mm-hmm. like you say, not a whole lot of things. How did that, I mean, you're from that area. How did that affect you when you went out, not just to do the cases, but you go out there and you see just the absolute sometimes squalor or things that are going on. You, you got to see how bad it really was in App- Appalachia, you know, in some of those places. Well, Morgan, I need to explain to you that where Parkersburg, West Virginia is from, you're right at the Ohio River. So you're within 60 seconds in many cases from going into Ohio. So we had a large industrial base in Wood County in the early 80s. A lot of a lot of money, a lot of well-to-do uh, people in that area. And as a result, that's why I believe the cocaine was so prevalent mm-hmm. because you had the people who had the ability to, to buy, buy powder cocaine that had not been cut down a lot. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one case um, uh, that we that we worked involved in in uh, you'll probably think I'm misleading you, but the DEA lab tested the Cincinnati marijuana that we seized at Slate Creek, West Virginia, which is in Wood County. It was the highest THC content at that time that that ever tested. And we were trading the Cincinnati marijuana to a group out of Chicago that we were trading Cincinnati marijuana for like 80% pure cocaine. Wow. And yeah. Where, where was the marijuana coming from? It grown, grown no. in Wood, grown Wood County. Um, the two people, and that's a story within itself, but the two people uh, that were growing it, uh, they had just. Uh, they were very, very good at at how they were able to trim the buds and how they were able to work with the plants to make the THC content higher. And since Amelia, for if you don't know this, is considered higher grade because it doesn't have any seeds in it. And, you know, when people are going to smoke weed, they pick the seeds out. Absolutely. And... And guys, on that case, after I was able to flip um, one of the caretakers of the Sensimilia marijuana, and as Steve knows, it's a lot of work on Sensimilia. You've, you, it's just like tomatoes. You got to cut off the the branches to get more, like right. tomato plants, you know. But and again, my my career has been filled with so much luck. Um, I go to Chicago to try to track down uh, the people distributing the cocaine, and I'm I'm out on surveillance with a DEA agent, um, Steve Old Basil, Basil Santos. Yeah, Old Old Basil, <laughs> a, yep. a legend. Mm-hmm. And and I said, Basil, I said, no one's here yet. I said, something in tells me. That if I was taking pictures, I would go right across the street to this photography studio. And he says, ah, you're wasting your time, wasting your time. So I go over to the guy, and there was this elderly man, and it was one of these small shops that they had in the 80s since we did not have digital Mm -hmm. photography then. 
And I said, showed him my credentials, and I said, sir, do you know Dan in the last name? Uh, and he looked at me, and he just froze. And he looked, and pointed at me and says, I've been waiting on you. I said, you have? You've been waiting on me? And he says, yes. He says, I'll be right back. And I thought, man, he's going in the back to get a gun. He's coming out. So I unsnap, and I'm there. He comes out. And he lays these photos down. He says, I kept copies of them. And it's uh, Dan and Cindy, the sources for the cocaine. It's pictures of them in the mountains of Peru. Really? Yeah. It's pictures of them at the Cincinnati marijuana fields in West Virginia, working on working on the uh, the flowers and the buds. And I'm here going, wow. <laughs> See, in law enforcement, we call that evidence now. That's good evidence. Yeah. yeah. The U.S. attorney just was just said, we can, this will be the first indictment for importation of drugs into the Northern Judicial District of West Virginia. They were just so excited. And it was just over a hunch. It was just yeah. over a hunch. But uh, we had Cindy on a mule, a mule with, on the back of the mule had, um, a real uh, mule, not a not a person mule. A, a real, real mule. mule, real mule, <laughs> uh, bringing uh, cocoa leaves off the mountaintop. Wow! And you know, when you said something there, Jeff, that you've been very lucky. There's no such thing as luck. This comes from good work ethic, from being dedicated to your job. So you know, you're not lucky about it all. You just did what you're supposed to do. See yep. now, for me, I love. I always love to do interview and interrogation, and that's you got one of those trump cards there because you can be sitting there talking. And I've, have you ever done this? Have no. Is there any reason there would be pictures of you on a mule and you know uh, the mountains? <laughs> doing, no, no. And then you just kind of lay one out there. Well, can you explain this? You know, Where did this come from. And can you explain this? I got a whole stack of them with your name on them here. Let's play <laughs> this game. You know. So, did you get a chance to interview Cindy? Oh yes, um, and that's a story. Uh, Cindy lawyered up, Dan lawyered up. I knew it was so ironic. I knew both of their attorneys and they tried to get, they came and said, we will plead to one count tax evasion if, if Cindy would cooperate against Dan. And, and, and I, we worked it out. One count tax evasion, five years. She turned it down. She turned it down, and she she ended up getting 20 years, and Dan got 30. See, when you're a defense lawyer and you look at that, that's one of those stories where you go back to your wall. There's a spot on the wall where they bang their head, and they go, I told her, I told her, I told her. <laughs> yeah. But, Steve, I, I don't know if this ever happened with you. The marshal service, for close to a year, could not get Dan's fingerprints. He had the ability, he had the ability that every time that they would take him, take mm -hmm. him to get fingerprints, he would just start sweating. Uh, um, they, they said it was just all smudged. I've heard so of people like that, but I've never seen one. Yeah. But so finally, uh, the Bureau of Prisons um, uh, got him up at 3 a.m. in the morning, took him in, got his fingerprints. And it was just amazing, the aliases that he had across the United States. Wow. I mean, it was, <laughs> but it took months to get that. Yeah. That's what happens when you arrest Aquaman, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, got, yeah. tough That's to fingerprint those like. fins. Yeah. No, I, 
don't know if there was something I think called hyperhidrosis. I ran into that in a crime scene course one time. They mm-hmm. talk about it could happen because you also had to do if you had dead bodies or they'd been in the water and skin would slip mm-hmm. off, you'd have to put it over. Uh, anyway, fun stuff like that. But uh, so 20, see, I bet you Cindy was sitting in prison after that. Did, what did they really think they were going to go to trial and win? Um, you know, I, I cannot answer that, but until both of those defense attorneys died from old age, every time they would see me, they said, Jeff, every time I look at you, I say, why in the world didn't she take that plea? So, Criminals are not the smartest people. We had a guy in, uh, when I was stationed in Greensboro that was bringing, you know, 15 to 30 keys of Coke down from New York City to Salisbury, North Carolina, a little mm-hmm. small college town rocking it up into crack and selling it. And and he was looking at mandatory life under the sentencing guidelines, federal sentencing guidelines, because of his prior record and the amount of coke that he'd brought to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he thought we were a bunch of podunk hit cops. And his his first lawyer hired a big drug attorney and, you know, I think out of Miami and we offered a deal, you know, twenty years, plead up straight up to the, the conspiracy and, and twenty years. And he was 35 years old at the time, and he fired his lawyer, hired a New York City lawyer. He came down and looked at it, and, and we talked to him, and he said, I've advised my client to plead out, to accept the deal. He says he wants to go to trial, so we're going to trial with you. Mandatory life. We hung him out by the ears. Stupid. And if you want to hear the rest of that story, that is one of our Patreon Case of the Month episodes. <laughs> we talked about that one, Steve. Yep, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm shilling. Look, we're poor. I mean, I'm don't if you're the IRS and listening, do not report me, Jeff. We're poor. We're trying to make a little money on the side here. Pay us in cash only. Send us money. No. Um, but Steve, Steve, if I may, Steve, of interest, you may like this. We had testimony from dozens and dozens of people who helped transport the cocaine from Chicago to Parkersburg, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And we actually got the federal judge to agree that we could use demonstrative evidence. And we actually used procaine and was able to show, we were allowed to introduce it and show the jury what two kilos in a plastic bag were and what this looked like. And, it, and that was pretty cool. So Very you said cool. procaine. Yeah, it was a it's a cutting agent. I don't know if they still make it, but it was a cutting agent used in the early '80s. And so you package it up to look like two kilos, so people could see what a kilo looked like, look and Absol- felt like. Absolutely. Cool. Now, yeah. the real danger you know would have been if one of those guys you handed the kilo to started cutting it open and wanted to do the old Kelly <laughs> Savalas. Let me. Let me. <laughs> Hey, yeah. you can't put anything, you know, out of, out of Don't put anything in front of that party. guy's nose. He'll sniff it. Uh, there goes one juror number 12. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, keep, but let's, let's talk about too, because you worked a lot in narcotics and we're, we're going to, I want to let people know where this is going. Cause you're thinking we're just telling stories. The, where we're going eventually takes you to Iraq and Saddam Hussein and Tarek Aziz. And I want people to know that's where we're going. So why are we laying this out? Because it's important to lay this stuff out so you kind of see the trajectory of the path. Because you were IRS the whole time, but you worked a lot with the state police. You worked cross-agency, you know, the FBI, the ATF. Um, out of all the cases that you worked during that time, which one, um, trying to find the right words to it, which one actually for you made the most impact? I mean, but let's not talk about Baghdad yet, but which out of those cases you worked, which one for you, even if it didn't make national headlines, was one of the cases you go, this one I'm proud of. I would hang my, uh, you know, 
uh, hat on this one, you know, this is the one. Uh, that would be the um, uh, drug-wise. I have two, one tax-wise and one drug-wise, and that would be a case in Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, by, by, and the individual's name was uh, John Pankulis. And John Pankulis was a student from New Jersey that uh, came to WVU and decided, why do, do I need to go to class when I can just sell cocaine? And uh, that uh, case was in, I believe uh, Tom is going to, uh, one of your other guests is going to talk about that case. So, But that's uh, that in very proud of that case, but also the tax case was uh, Bernard Lee Burgess. And Bernard B. Lee Burgess was the fifth largest brake shoe manufacturer in the world. And in, um, in, the, in the indictment and in the press releases, everything I'm telling your listeners are, have, has been released. But um, Bernard Lee Burgess um, uh, just had the really very good skimming operation, skimming the gross receipts, gross receipts of his business by setting up fictitious uh, P.O. boxes in in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and forming corporations and uh, falsifying uh, payments to those corporations to reduce the tax liability of his his, uh, corporation. In that case, to my knowledge, is one of the largest tax evasion cases in the uh, history of West Virginia. But even more important was I was able to, uh, his uh, mistress, I was able to obtain her cooperation. And she uh, cooperated against the last known organized crime figure in the state of West Virginia. And this is also a public record, and, and that was Paul Hankish. Uh, Paul Hankish had his legs blown off in a car bomb in Youngstown, and uh, uh, we were able to um, seek her cooperation. And um, that's an interesting case, uh, guys, in that how that case was made was he built a multimillion-dollar home for his mistress in I got the blueprints, and I've always enjoyed uh, building things. And I got the blueprints and just started from the basement. And I would go out and contact concrete engineers, you name it. And I actually rebuilt the house, and all the house was paid for in cash. So, um, but when I, you say you rebuilt the house, what do you mean? Um, just ex- from a financial standpoint. From a financial standpoint, for example. Because I was going to—I didn't know the IRS had that much money to go out and rebuild a multi-million-dollar mansion for court. Exactly. There's demonstrative evidence. Come out and see our. Come out and see the mansion, folks. You got it. It, for example, um, the heating and cooling uh, for a house this size was massive, and I figured there was only one company that could do a house this size, and they. And I went to and met with the owner, and I said, can you help me? He goes, yes, I can. And he hands me the folder. And how Mr. Burgess 
put the heating and cooling system in that house was he falsified the invoices. It was for a cleaner at one of his factories that removed asbestos from the air of the workers. So rather than putting that uh, air cleaner in, he falsified the records and put the heating and cooling in his mistress's house. So I would, I was every component, the windows, the copper gutters, everything about that house, I would find out where the money came from to build that house. Now, when you said he took away the machine that cleaned the asbestos, was that just on paper or did he really take away a real physical machine and instead put in the heating cooling? He didn't even put it in. Uh, He handed the receipt to the uh, federal EPA and said, here, I put this in. They never checked that they took the record for the value of the record and it was falsified. That record was the record, although it showed uh, air duct cleaning, it was actually for heating and cooling for the mistress's house. So his workers in that place should have had additional safety equipment and this guy screwed them over so he could build a house for his mistress. Absolutely. And that's why um, he received eight years and served eight years in a federal prison. How big of, so when you say it was one of the largest uh, fraud cases, how big, how much money are we talking about here? I do not have that memory, Morgan, but it was in the millions. It was in the millions. But, you know, at some point you go, doesn't it take a lot of effort? I mean, I would get exhausted trying to keep 15 shell companies going in different invoices and stuff. You, you, you almost have to have a knack, you know, which obviously they do a knack for this. But it's like, man, I'm just trying to balance our own checkbooks and me and Murph, you know, with our little media company, you know, our powerhouse media. That's enough for me trying to do 15 fake, you know, companies and invoices. I don't. You would spend all your day creating fake paper trails. Well, that's what his mistress's job was. Uh, Hence to... why she became a great informant when you flipped her. Absolutely. How did you manage that, by the way? <laughs> what was your pitch to her to say, come work for Team America? Hey, he's already wooed Nancy Reagan. I mean, this girl, she's going to be no problem. <laughs> Do you know who I – did you show up in jeans with the oil stains on them and say, I'm your Huckleberry? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I, I actually used a family member. Yours I or hers? Act- hers. I actually used one of her family members stating, this is massive. You better, you better uh, talk to her and uh, tell her she needs to come to the right side. Um, Oh my gosh, guys, so many memories. She actually, you guys know what a Nagra is from your work, the old Swiss, and uh, you, you know, they put off heat. Oh, yeah. Massive <laughs> amounts of heat. Let's ask Lou Veloza or Dominic Polifron, yeah. who had it over the family jewels during many operations. Oh, yeah. and, and she she went undercover with uh, Tom Kirk, who's going to be one of your guests. And um, we put that Nagra, she, she was well endowed, and we put that Nagra there. And they said, are you going to be okay? And she goes, yeah, I'll be okay. Well, it actually burned her oh, in, yeah. the, well, in oh. the area. You but, had you uh, had to put something underneath a nagger when it was taped to your skin, and it would oh, yeah. it would literally yeah. burn your skin. Yeah, he, well, Steve, it was actually in a uh, a one of those uh, sleeves, sock sleeves, and it still did it. Oh, gee. But oh. but you talk about it. I went in uh, to this very nice restaurant in Wheeling, West Virginia, and I'm there having my dinner, watching Paul Hankish on his. Uh, his nubs 
from where he had his uh, lower legs blown off going around and he would come to a chair and he'd put his hands down and just pick himself up and on this chair. And it was just, it was a sight to see, but Tom, one of your next guests is, uh, he was one of the, he was a very, very good undercover agent guys. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean I've trusted him with a, a million dollars in cash in a briefcase and we bought a bar one time. So, uh, wow. Uh, but you bought a bar. Do you still have it? Uh, no, uh, it was, um, <laughs> then we had money laundering and it was, uh, auctioned off and the, the, the West Virginia state police got the money for it. Oh yeah. That, but, but, that would have been a fantastic good. place to do this interview. Wasn't it in the bar? Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. It's, um, but, um, but no, um, the Bernard Lee Burgess case was very complex, um, very complex. And, and really, when you came down to it, Morgan, you said, keep tracking things. What we eventually was able to find out was he had so many customers throughout the world. And he just picked certain customers. And those customers were not entered into the books the the those books and records that the uh all the governmental agencies would right. get so he it, he kept it separate so in those those invoices went to these PO boxes that the office staff did not know about so once we found out where uh, how he was doing this it was quite easy now you said he was organized crime. One of the last was he affiliated with any of the known families that we know about, or just kind of a regional OC family? Um, okay, let me make sure. Bernard Lee Burgess was not OC. It was his secretary went against Paul Hankish, which was an unrelated yeah. case. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. But it, he, the people, the information was that people came from New York to try to kill him. And instead of killing him, they just blew off his lower legs. Did they mean to kill him and screw up or was that the, Oh message? yeah. They, they, they meant to kill him. They <clears throat> well, meant to kill him. I guess he's got a new nickname now. Uh, well, you know, no, he, he died in federal prison. He died in federal. That's a good place. Room temperature are good for guys like that. So mm. how long did this operation go on, um, with your, uh, uh, with the, with the mistress until, you know, how long did she work uh, for you guys? Uh, for approximately six to eight months like that. So, and the question I have on that too, is having been in trials, you've all been, we've all been in trials. And for folks who haven't, sometimes they're slam dunks. You go in there and you say, here's the video surveillance. The guy pointed a gun at the other guy, pulled the trigger. Mm -hmm. He's dead. That's easy. This is complex. How do you, mm -hmm. how do you present a complex case to a jury and a not bore the holy shit out of them and B take the complex and makes it simple so they can arrive at that conclusion. Did they violate federal law, these statutes? Well, let me state, Mr. Burgess pled guilty. He pled guilty, so we did not go to trial. But we've had other trials, which are very complex, in utilizing um, the technology that's been developed over the years, rather than using paper and giving jurors thousands and thousands of documents of paper, uh, publishing them in on video like PowerPoints, putting them on the, putting them on the screen and in your jury has their own little monitor in front of them, 
publishing those. I mean, we've introduced, in some cases, over 3,000 documents in, in an hour uh, to the jury. Wow. Dang. <clears throat> Yeah, because that's, I'll tell you what, it does. And that now when you start talking money laundering, you know, tax evasion, other stuff where there's cutouts and shells and this and that, I mean, the jury has to be able, at the end of the day, understand what they've just been told, you know, mm-hmm. and be able to make those decisions. So right. that's interesting. But yeah, the technology has helped. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you're killing a bunch of force every time you have a case. Murphy, wasn't it you said, what was that one case you talked about where you had to transport a lot of the cases you had, like, or was it you or somebody else talked about when they're sitting there in court, they had like, 50 or 75 banker boxes behind him with all of the... That was the Manuel Noriega trial down in Miami with uh, uh, Steve Greeley and... Uh, oh, this one you yeah. provided security for, right? No, I just ha- happened to be in town from Columbia oh. with a Colombian police officer, and, and uh, he wanted to go see the courthouse, and just so happened it was lunchtime, and we asked the marshals, could we see, you know, Pineapple Face sitting there in court? And when they brought him in after lunch break, but before the jury came in, we were allowed to walk through the courtroom and get a little peek at the man. And Very how big were the, how big was the, was the fortress of boxes? Oh, it was so big that, uh, so Steve, and both these guys are DEA agents, Steve sat at the prosecutor's table and Lenny sat he had a chair like in the sea of boxes and when they go to look for they had everything categorized so when they needed a piece of evidence that was lenny's job was to find it in one of those boxes Man. monumental it's monumental mvp mvp he is he is he's now an attorney <laughs> yeah so um jeff so when you started working these cases at some point like i said we're, we're moving towards iraq but um the world started changing, obviously, because you said that you became a supervisor, you know, from 93 to 2005. So right before that, we had the first World Trade Center bombing. That was kind of, you know, it seemed like an isolated event, but we started looking at the rise of al-Qaeda. We looked at terrorism financing. We looked at all of those different things. When did you start, you know, what point did you start looking at it from the terrorism standpoint? You know, when did, when did that kind of work start coming your way? Nationally. Um, the IRS Criminal Investigation Division sent a cryptic email out. And they said, well, let me put that on pause and go back. 9-11 occurs. I'm getting, I'm driving to make an arrest in uh, West Virginia. And I get a phone call from Washington, D.C. And it said, uh, Agent Sandy, we need you to go to this secure location in eastern United States, stop what you're doing, go pack, pack for 30 days, and uh, get as many agents, we'll get as many agents as we have available, and we're putting them under your command. So I go home, pack every piece of underwear I've got and whatever, and, and I start driving. They would not tell me where we're going, where I'm going. So I'm driving. I'm about an hour away from Washington, D.C. They tell me where I'm going. And for the next uh, 30 days, I'm at this facility. Is it the seat of government for the United States when all hell breaks out? Uh, um, I cannot. That's one thing, you know, even though I've been retired, I won't disclose that location. But I got to tell you a funny story about that. We get information that a Cessna plane had left Oklahoma City, had stopped to refuel in uh, Louisville, 
in was about 300 miles away from this location. And you're talking about I'm a grade 14 uh, uh, special agent, and and I have this uh, military guy says, Mr. Sandy, uh, what do you want us to do? And I said, we, this is a no-fly zone. Put them up. And I got to tell you, you talking about impressive. Uh, these two jets went up, and one one went under that Cessna, and one got on top, and they kept radio for him. You need to land. This is your last opportunity. You land, or we're going to blow you out of the sky. And uh, the one in the middle rolled out, and the guy came down, and um, that guy turned turned his plane and landed at the facility where we were at. And he was I, drug he was drug out of there. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about because I'm a I was in Loudoun County. I was actually in the Reagan Building when 9/11 happened. We walked across the bridge and saw the Pentagon burning and. Mm -hmm. um, that stuff. And so I know what you're talking about because we heard the jets flying combat air patrol over us. But mm -hmm. um, because the reason I asked that too is because uh, there was a trial before that, or no, there was a trial that came later. It was the Holy Land Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a lot of, but I remember when they started looking at the financing, a lot of places in Loudoun County and a lot of places in Fairfax County, they looked at from a terrorism financing standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's it for your listeners to get a grasp of this, the millions of dollars involved that were advertised to help feed the poor and needy kids of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So much of that was from these bubble gum and lifesaver machines that when you would go into a dental office, a lawyer's office, and please donate. And um, I'm very familiar, Morgan, with that uh, uh, a case. But more so, so Morgan, after that uh, 30 days, that's when I volunteered to work in um, eastern United States at our nation's first fusion center. And um, I was there for many months. And then I'll go to the story that I started to tell you. And that was we got a cryptic email that said, uh, if you're able to work in an environment that reaches over 100 degrees and you're able to, uh, sleep um, outside and so forth, um, uh, we would like uh, for you to consider volunteering. And I put my name in the hat for that. How do you know they weren't talking about South Florida? Because that sucks during the summer. It gets over <laughs> yeah. 100 and then bugs down there. <laughs> my yeah, God. Yeah. Phoenix. <laughs> you know, they never gave me that option, Morgan. <laughs> and I don't think you were headed. I think you knew you weren't going to head to Florida. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, so I, to the extent you can disclose what you can disclose. for So for that 30 days in this, uh, we'll talk offline, but I have a... Actually, before we do that, there used to be another classified facility that was exposed by the Washington Post that was in the great state of West Virginia mm -hmm. that should mm -hmm. anything happen. Yeah, uh, it was a huge bunker. Is. Yeah. yeah. Well, yep. uh, have you, if you have an opportunity to go there, uh, please go there. The, it's a, just a wonder. Everyone needs to go there in their lifetime. And in fact, I'm probably doing something unethical right now because my governor family owns that place now. <laughs> You're not doing it unethical because I asked you about it and I would tell people go visit this if you get a chance. So I don't worry, I can edit all this out. I can make you look good or I can make you look bad, Jeff. It's up to you. You know what I mean? We can make yeah. a deal here. But um, tell us, what's the name of it? Tell the people about it. Well, that was not where I went. But No, no, no. I'm talking about the one that was, the one that is the, 
the place we need to go in West Virginia. Oh, that's the Greenbrier Resort. And it is just um, just a wonderful place um, to go. The food is just outstanding. Um, um, the um, If you're married, the Swedish massage, um, my wife, um, uh, she just enjoys that so much. Horseback riding, the um, carriage ride through the mountains. Uh, it's just, just a special place to go to. And if you're a golfer, uh, the golf, they, they had PGA events there. It's just a, a wonderful place to go. But to go to what you said, there is a tour that you can go with the, uh, in, in, you can actually walk through it all where if, uh, we had a nuclear war, uh, all our, your legislators, Congress, Senate, could actually live in this underground bunker. And they show you where their beds, where they would live. The auditorium, uh, which people thought it was to watch movies, it was where actually our world, our United States of America would operate. So it's wow. um, well, very well worth the tour. And that's in White Sulphur Springs. Yes, sir. And it happened as the Cold War was escalating in the 50s. I mean, they've got this facility built underground. In fact, I was just pulling it up. The uh, name of the facility was codenamed Project Greek Island. And that's what it was. It was an island unto itself. The ability to sustain hundreds of people for an extended period of time and continue to run government, continuity of government, while which was now, it's, it's well known now that... Um, Mount Weather used to be a classified facility until a jet crashed into the side of the mountain and people started showing up in black BDUs with M16 saying, stay away from it here. So that's how, you know, a lot of these things. But I think they got outed by the Washington Post in some story. But uh, anyway, but anyway, but it's right. It's huge. It's great. And people, and by the way, too, there may be, uh, there's a rumor that maybe some of the Army uh, may do some training in some certain areas of West Virginia for their some of their elite operators. I've heard that. It's a it's it's a rumor. Can I mm-hmm. can you confirm or deny, Jeff? Well, we're very fortunate in West Virginia. We have a wonderful National Guard. Um and we are we provide training for countries all over the world. And um because of our the uh, strip mining, coal mining operations, you have vast amount of property there, which has been reclaimed, uh, the rivers for uh, swift water rescue. Um, it's just uh, this past year, we had a national exercise here, uh, which military from over the United States, which my office, Department of Homeland Security, was involved. It's just there's so many. West Virginia has got such a wide area of, of uh wilderness and property and rivers and in former coal mines and stuff. It's a wonderful place to train. Hey players, that is the end of part one with Jeff Sandy, obviously our favorite guy from the IRS ever. Hey, by the way, if you want to hear part two, that's coming out in just a few days. Part two will come out on Thursday. You can catch the rest of the cases that we're talking about and what else Jeff is working on. 
In the meantime, go check us out on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We are launching in the month of July our latest series, The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos, Cali Edition, Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell talking about the takedown of the Cali cartel. You will only get that if you join us at the Guardian of the Realm or Warden of the Throne level. So make sure you come on over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, go check out our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's where we put our books, pictures, everything else about the guests. And as always, we welcome your feedback. So hit us up, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe, hit that link up there, no matter which player you're on, and also give us those five stars. Spotify, Apple, they both got it. Make sure you do it. We would really appreciate it. In the meantime, stay tuned for part two of our favorite man from the IRS, Jeff Sandy, as we talk about some of the cases he worked on in the great state of West Virginia. Thank you.